1: Hey, this is Mark Treichel with another episode of With Flying Colors. Today's topic is going to be an update on NCUA's Stakeholder Forum on Interest Rate Risk Supervisory Framework. This webinar, and update from NCUA, just happened at 2.30 Eastern on September 15th. I listened to it, and one of my team members, Todd Miller, who is Got a great background in this. Also, listen to it. And we're going to talk through our immediate take on having just heard NCUA's webinar on their changes to interest rate risk supervisory framework, which was outlined in letter 22 CU09, issued just this month. Todd, how are you doing today?
0: I am doing, the weather's a little bit cooler. It's been a lot, a very hot summer out here, but today, weather's nice, doing well. And this is an interesting thing. Been waiting for it since I signed up for it. So listen to it with a great deal of anticipation.
1: Yeah. You and I have both been looking forward to this one. We've got some clients we've assisted on interest rate risk over the past few months who have been waiting with a bated breath for the letter to credit unions. And then also for potentially some clarifications with the webinar today. And it's, it's been a, Few episodes since you and I chatted, we actually did do an, ironically, we did do a net economic value pick podcast early on in the history here of with flying colors. I did a follow up on that when rates started going up. And so this will actually be yours and my second discussion on this, but the third actual podcast I've had on this particular topic. But if you could, for people who haven't listened to some of the podcasts that you have been on, if you could give a little bit of your background at NC and then they'll quickly realize why it makes sense to listen to this episode and hear what you have to say relative to this topic.
0: Like you, Mark, I'm a retired NCUA employee. I was with NCUA from 1987 up to 2021. So 34 years, call it. During that time, I spent most of my time as a problem case officer, spent 10 years as a capital market specialist from 2000 to 2010. And then from 2010 to 2021, when I retired, I was a director of special actions in the Western region, supervising capital market specialists, and as well as problem case officers in dealing with troubled credit unions. So in my 10 years as a capital market specialist, did a lot of training for NCUA examiners on the review of interest rate risk and liquidity and had a hand in developing some of these tools that they use today. And if I didn't, staff that worked for me certainly did. Very close to all of these topics, especially over the last 10 years.
1: Yeah, yeah, you, as you said, 10 years as a capital market specialist and then another 10 plus years supervising those capital market specialists and having been in on meetings where NCUA set some of these policies and or provided some input on where NCUA was at in the past. And that's actually might be a good transition on providing. We've given your background a little bit. Maybe it'd be good if we kind of walk through for the audience a little bit of history and background on this whole arena with where NCUA has come since the early 2000s and where they're at coming up to today's webinar?
0: Sure, we can do that. And we did a lot of this background in our NEV podcast too. If people want to go back and listen to that one. In the early 2000s, NCUA had this thing they called the 17-4 test. It just looked at asset volatility. It was a scope determinant. 2016 is really when they came out with a policy that they were talking about today and revisions made to that. So we'll talk a little bit about that one. That's when NCUA determined that we were going to use, or the agency was going to use premiums of one and 4% for non-maturity shares. You'll have to excuse me if I say we, sometimes I think I'm still with NCUA, I spent so much time with that family. But that was addressing a problem. There were credit unions out there that had very large non-maturity share premiums. It wasn't a lot of them, but there was a number of them where those premiums would be 15%, 20%, even on occasions, 30%. And in those situations, a credit union could essentially have about 100% of their loans in fixed rate, long-term real estate, and the models would say they're fine. So I would rephrase it as credit unions were using model results to justify what they were doing and not using their models to inform their decision-making, so to speak. So... To just alleviate all of that, NCUA came up with the 1% and 4% premiums. They did a lot of research. Everyone's models on the asset side of the balance sheet looked very much the same. Most of the liability side looked very much the same. But then you come to these non-maturity shares and results were all over the place and very inconsistent. So NCUA said, we'll make this consistent. We'll create some bright lines. It will avoid us from having these discussions with credit unions. It's a one-size-fits-all approach. That works for most of the time, and it did accomplish what the agency wanted in terms of some consistency of measurement and helping them compare risk in one credit union to another credit union. It accomplished that very well
1: and they actually Todd they actually in the webinar which we'll all have a link to the actual NCUA webinar in the show notes so once they I might have to go back and add that cuz we might get our podcast up before NCUA gets their webinar up although they've been moving those more quickly lately but they made a reference to that uh that specific issue that it, it helps NCUA provide context if we're looking at everybody doing all of their own assumptions on it. And as you said, you could have people going with as a low as 4% and as high as 30%. The numbers come out uh, so much differently. This provides context to NCUA so they can take their quarterly data and take a look at it and see who those outliers are so that perhaps they could say, because they're outliers here, we might want to send a capital market special, specialist into those credit unions so that we could see if they have the systems in place and the programs in place to mitigate whatever risks those numbers might show or that there actually might not be any risk do I, does that sound right? Do I have that? That
0: does sound about, and I think it's an accurate statement, but we'll go back and talk a little bit more about the background, is it creates some problems
1: too. Anytime
0: you do a one size fits all approach, you're going to have outliers where that approach just doesn't work. The fact of the matter is, credit are not all the same, balance sheets vary. There's an infinite number of combinations of risk and reward out there, and one size fits all approaches doesn't work for everybody. And in fact, their guidance in 2016 was very inconsistent from the way they manage other risks. They've always talked about it's examiner judgment. We need to look at a given risk area in light of other risks areas. So we need to aggregate risk together and their approach in 2016 says, if you hit this bright line, you're going to get a document or resolution, and we're going to ask you to de-risk. So I took a sledgehammer to a problem that just really needed something as simple as a, a Dremel tool. They went way overboard with it, and it was very inconsistent with their other examination procedures in that. And everything else, let's look at aggregate risk. Here, they said, here's a silo. There's zero examiner judgment we're going to look at this one factor. We're not gonna consider how much credit risk you have. We're not gonna consider how much liquidity risk you have. We're not gonna consider that a credit union with 2% operating expenses can accept a lot more interest rate risk than a credit union with say 4% operating expenses. So from that one aspect, this bright line that they created in 2016 was actually not really consistent with the rest of their exam guide and the rest of their processes. And when you really come down to this program update in this new issuance that they issued here last month and that we talked about today, they really just fixed that and really brought the world back to let's be more consistent with the way we evaluate all these other risk areas we do evaluate risk in light of other risk areas. We are going to allow a measure of examiner judgment. We are going to go back where this test they use, and they're still going to use the test, is a scope determinant and it helps them find outliers. So it's still useful for that. They're going to use it for that. That's more consistent with the way they examine all the other areas of risk. So, in the big scheme of things, I would just say they're maybe fixing a mistake they made in 2016. Other people might not categorize it like that, but the reality is that policy has caused a lot of angst for a lot of credit unions here this year.
1: It, yeah, it sure has. And it, it I think it, it went unnoticed until rates went up right we didn't have a situation where we saw the results of what it was doing where everybody was getting rated extreme and if you were extreme you automatically had to get a document resolution and as you've so eloquently said examiner judgment in every other area determines whether or not you get a document resolution, whether you get an examiner finding. Let me back up. Setting aside Bank Secrecy Act, where there are some required document resolutions and things like that based on agreements with other agencies. This really gets this whole interest rate risk topic more aligned with the rest of their exam program, which, again, comes back to examiner judgment. Todd, one other thing you mentioned is if someone if, the, if someone has extremely low operating expenses or extremely high net worth, yet they have some issues with their uh, interest rate risk calculation here, the ENT or the NEV, whichever, whichever, whichever way you want to call it, if they have a lot of other positives, those can be mitigating factors that may result in the examiner using that judgment and concluding that the credit union does not need a document of resolution. Anything you'd like to expand on relative to the statement I just made?
0: I think that's absolutely it. And they alluded it to it a little bit in the webinar that you may still find yourself, credit may still find itself with a high risk rating for interest rate or risk or for sensitivity is the term they use now, it's on the camels. But yes, you can use these mitigating factors now where perhaps you won't get a document of resolution. Yeah, and we'll go through maybe the slides a little bit in their presentation and get to the document of resolution. The letter is very specific as to when you'll get a document or resolution. It's more consistent with other practices in that you're going to get a document of resolution if your risk is high enough to cause some undue risk to the insurance fund. Our management, risk management practices are severely deficient. Now you can have that number, but if your risk management processes are good and you have control over your risks in other areas, you're probably not going to get a door. I'm sure there's still going to be some uncomfortable discussions about your risk position and what is really management doing to recognize that and assessing if they need to do something with it or not. I thought it was interesting They had a slide during today's webinar on contributing factors and results. Some of this is because we just had a huge surge in deposits over 2020 and 2021 during the pandemic. They grew over 20% both of those years, so capital ratios dropped across the industry. So we're starting out at a lower point than perhaps we were when this policy was enacted. It is interesting that growth has slowed tremendously since then. And in fact, from March to June, there's been almost no show, share growth. But it's hitting, this whole high risk It's hit a very specific number of credit unions. And they talked a little bit around it during the webinar. But the ones that it's really impacted the most are these credit unions with lower sh- loan to share ratios. So you have a group of credit unions that are relying on their investment portfolio for earnings, not just liquidity management, but they have large investment portfolios that are really serving as their loan portfolio. So they have zero credit risk, but they've taken on duration and extended the maturity of their investments because it's a core piece of their earnings. While the rise in interest rate risks Or interest rates, it's dropped the value of those significantly. And you can see it on the FPR just nationally. I think it's around, they mentioned it during the webinar, 17% of net worth is sitting in these realized losses and investments. So those credit unions have been hit really hard in terms of triggering extreme risk on that supervisory test. But they're also the credit unions that have the most mitigating factors. They typically have very low operating expenses. And because they're not making loans, they have almost no credit risk. So they need to be taking on interest rate risk to generate earnings. And it's all reasonable. And many of these credit unions were just showing up as moderate risk in December, all of a sudden now they're
1: extreme. Went from moderate to extreme and now the definition of extreme is oh, is gone, but that may have led to them already getting a document resolution.
0: Yeah, so-, so those are the people that have been hit really hard by this policy. And they're the very ones where when you assess the risk mitigation, they have the most mitigation. So they're the group that can actually take the most interest rate risk too.
1: So. It are Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah, we might want to do a little deeper dive into that. But I, the other thing, too, is it might be best for someone who hasn't seen the letter, if we maybe talk through the highlights of the actual letter to credit unions to, to give a primer on who the letter applies to, et cetera. So what what are the highlights of the this recent letter that we
0: saw? I would say there's a couple main highlights in the letter. First off, this applies mostly to credit unions over 50 million dollars. So the smaller credit unions, it doesn't impact them at all. The letter does a number of things. In the 2016 policy, they created this extreme risk category where there was no ifs, ands, or buts. You were going to get a document resolution if NCUA supervisory test determined your risk was extreme using their 1% and 4% non-maturity shares. It does away with that entire extreme risk rating. It's gone. They've just eliminated it. Now we just have low, medium, high. So they've eliminated that entire risk rating, which was appropriate. The policy in 2016 also took away examiner flexibility. They were not allowed to alter that rating at all. It was a numerical rating. This new guidance in the letter, it gives the examiner some judgment back. Now, it does say it should be rare for credit unions to lower that risk rating, but it does create an environment where they can. And then of course, the absolute largest thing it does is the 2016 guidance required a document of resolution and a de-risking plan that has done away with. They've created some specific criteria where a document of resolution is still appropriate. But for a lot of credit unions, not for a lot. It's hard to judge. For many credit unions, the document resolution is probably not going to be appropriate. They laid out conditions for when they might still need a document resolution, and that's undue risk to the insurance fund. A credit union really hasn't reacted appropriately to these rising interest rate risks. It's a big change in risk credit should be talking about their various loan and investment and pricing strategies, and they probably need to change them or at least reassess them. So there's a category of folks that have not done that, may still find themselves with a door, even at a high risk rating. And then the third piece, and this has always been a reason for having a document or resolution, it lays out if a gradient has material issues or weaknesses in their governance of risk. And that's always required to door. In regardless of the area. So that's really not a new policy. It's just reaffirming a policy that's already existed. But that was the biggest change is they deleted the extreme risk, gave their examiner judgment back. Doors are not automatic now. They need a safety and soundness reason for giving you a door, basically.
1: Got it. You also mentioned as we were chatting before we started, before I hit the record button, that there's a sentence or two in the letter where the NCUA equates the fact of asset growth and complexity and risk. And I know you have some general thoughts on that, uh, on whether or not that's, that is a, that is that a truism or is there, is it a little bit more nuanced than that, Todd?
0: I'll actually go, I have the letter right in front of me. So I'll read the sentence. There's two sentences and then I'll chat with them about. So the two sentences in the letter says the credit system has experienced significant growth and complexity over the past two years with total assets growing by approximately 25%. As the system is growing, concentrations in longer maturity assets have significantly increased sensitivity to changes in interest rates. So they're talking about assets, and I guess NCUA has been doing this for a long time to justify budget growth, to justify new departments. Assets are growing, so the world is getting more complex. And that's not necessarily the case. And in here, that those two sentences infer that complexity is increasing. But the fact of the matter is, if you pull down NCUA's call reports for June of uh, this year, long-term fixed-rate real estate loans have moved from 23.2% of assets in 2018 to 22.39% percent at June of 2022. So in four years, exposure to fixed rate real estate loans as a percentage of assets, it's actually come down a little bit. It hasn't gone up. Now, total real estate loans have gone up, but as a percentage of assets, no, it's come down. Another big piece of that is commercial loans, because they throw all these commercial loans into long-term assets. They went from 4.88% of assets in 2018 to 5.88% today. It's very much an insignificant change. So it's one of those things, NCUA, they say that a lot, that growth equals complexity. But really, when you look at that balance sheet composition and how they're funding those assets, it hasn't really changed. They leave out the funding side of it, which hasn't gotten any more complex either. I just find it interesting. They throw that into all their letters. They use it a lot. Assets are growing. World is getting more complex. Not really. Assets are growing, but complexity is not changing very quickly in aggregate across the industry. There might be individual creditings that increased a lot, but across the industry, no. That complexity has not really changed since 2018.
1: Got it. No, that's. A, I think that's a, a an interesting point that I didn't pick up on. I'm glad you did a deep dive on the numbers. And like you said, individually, credit unions' risk profiles have changed, and we've seen that on, on some individual situations that that we've been involved with. But that's good to point out. Now, one one thought on the whole liquidity side of this in the webinar and I might be getting a little bit ahead of myself here but this just popped into my head so let's go forward so in the webinar there were some discussions about the liquidity the requirement for liquidity policies and different things like that and there's there were also references and you might have the slide in front of you but references to the upside down nature of the investment portfolios collectively in credit unions where where the net worth is a certain percentage of the net worth is eaten up by the fact that these investments are underwater. And of course, they don't have to recognize that if it's in a hold to maturity category. However, there are some situations where credit unions need to worry about that longer term if if they have a big investment portfolio and if that loss keeps going up. That can have some ramifications on their liquidity in different ways. But one of those ways is the relationships that they have for borrowing. I've heard you speak to me on that offline, but can you highlight highlight that here for our listeners?
0: So there's lots of pieces to the liquidity piece. And I think this is one of those things where NCUA, they tend to fall behind on where risk is really going and then it hits them in the face and then they start adjusting policies. In fact, someone asked a, a question during the webinar today, Is NCUA looking at how it's looking at liquidity and do they have any plans to change it? And they talked around the answer. So somebody is paying attention to what's going on. I think there's a few things going on with liquidity risk, and there's a lot of indicators that it's increasing. So first, a lot of creditors and lenders, they look at your gap equity as opposed to your regulatory equity. And while regulatory equity isn't falling because it doesn't consider these investment losses, gap equity is falling pretty significantly too. It's down from about 11.2 in 2019 to 9.99 today on an aggregate basis. You look at the investment portfolio. Let's see, I have a call report in front of me. I'll get to it here. Fair market value of hold to maturity investments is down to 94% of book value. And that unrealized loss on available for sale investments is 7.5% at June. Credit unions don't like to sell investments at a loss. One of NCUA's internal models that they used to use years ago, it had an indicator for investment losses greater than 2%. Because just intuitively, history shows when you're more than 2% underwater, you typically don't want to sell those investments. They're still available to pledge, but that's a secondary source of liquidity and your haircuts are going to get larger, especially if a credit union starts having asset quality problems. Generally, if asset quality is good, they can still use those investments to assess wholesale funding. A couple of other things going on that they don't talk about behind the scenes, is we have these very large inflation numbers. No one really talks about them. But if you go look at deposit growth since March of this year, it's 0.2%. Deposit growth is ended. People are struggling to pay bills, and I'm sure that has an impact on that whole deposit growth, which is almost nothing. When I looked from March to June across the industry, all your asset growth was from borrowed money. So borrowed money is growing very rapidly. And then we have these rising rates. So what is the cost of that borrowed money? Right now, it's not showing up in cost of funds yet because all that borrowing is shifting to overnight. Historically, creditors they would borrow long-term to fund loans. They would borrow long-term to hedge interest rate risk. Now you're seeing just an explosive growth in overnight borrowed money, and that's funding growth in the industry. And that's just from March to June. And so, those are kind of indicators that, hey, liquidity problems might be coming down the pike for individual credit unions. And so, you got a combination, and borrowings are going up, investment values are falling, gap net worth is falling. We have these large inflation numbers, which potentially means parts of the economy are slowing down. People are having troubles playing bills. I remember one of our clients, we were having a conversation, or they had us look at their credit committee meetings and their cost of fuel oil for that one person, their members, it tripled from last year. And so they had just a segment of their middle-class members are going to struggle just because of the income cost and heating costs this winter. So there's lots of little warning indicators around liquidity. And so they did mention during the podcast today, there is a liquidity regulation. You are supposed to have a contingency funding plan. You do have to have the Access to the Federal Reserve or the CLF if you're over 250 million. So, just as a side note, even though this is a podcast about interest rate risk, the industry would do well to go reassess their liquidity risk at an individual party level and see if strategies about that might need to change as well.
1: No, that's a great point. And it's they're related and an issue I think that's brewing. And as you mentioned, you've got you, you didn't mention the specifics, but you've got the corporate credit unions, you've got the federal home loan banks. Of course, you've got the Fed, and their liquidity borrowing abilities can be at one or all of those. And of course, obviously, depending on their size, but other factors are potentially painting some credit unions in a corner. Because of the fact of the value of their portfolios, because of the fact that maybe they've already accessed some of their lines. And as numbers start to deteriorate, those sources tend to look a little bit more closely at the credit union i think you've said they put they they may start monitoring and put them on some sort of watch list it's something you definitely want to get ahead of before you end up having some of those things evaporate un, under you and it, as i've heard said before liquidity doesn't matter until it matters and when and then it's the only thing that matters
0: yeah, and I think we're a ways away from it. I don't want to imply that borrowing is bad or credit unions in, in totally in trouble because that's not the case at all. The That whole borrowing and ability to borrow is there to help serve your members and get you through these crises. And we don't really know how long the economy is going to stay down or how inflation how long inflation will remain elevated and how that will impact consumers. So far, you don't see it on the asset quality side. Delinquency isn't coming up anywhere yet in credit unions. So that's a good thing, but you might start seeing it become elevated. And that becomes a watchword with liquidity issues, too, is when credit risk starts going up and you start seeing elevated delinquency and elevated charge-offs, then the liquidity risk will Really start accelerating.
1: Sure, and of course that gets to that inflation. That gets to where where are companies' profits at? What do they do relative to unemployment? What's the impact of unemployment on 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 rates going up to try and control inflation? And just listing those things makes my head hurt. And there's smarter people out there than me that that know what all that means. But it does mean it, it can create some issues individually for credit unions, individually for people. And what have you. So
0: I'm sure it's extremely challenging for every credit management team out there and board out there because you have these national trends, but then you have all this localized stuff. And there sure. are sure places where the economy is still very robust. There's places it's slowing down. There's places where their segments are good and other parts are slowing down. It has to be, there's just the uncertainty is higher, I think, than it has probably been in the last four or five years. And they alluded to that a little bit in this letter. It's wait, we haven't seen an interest rate risk increase like this in a long time. And so that level of uncertainty, it always creates risk management challenges. So it's a tough time for management teams and boards of directors.
1: Yeah, that's a fact. Well, so we've talked about what the letter highlighted. We talked about the door clarification of what happens relative to not requiring a door, what's, what, what might require a door. And we both listened to the webinar. Maybe we should talk through what we thought the key takeaways were, where they provided some context in the, the webinar on the letter. So, what jumps out to you having just listened to it? What do you think we should highlight here for our audience relative to the webinar if they haven't listened to it themselves?
0: The person who spoke about this, Jonathan Farrell, he spoke very quickly, but he had a slide on things that would help you avoid getting an in- a door. And they gave some examples in the actual letter itself of situations that you would not necessarily receive a door. And I think for a lot of credit unions, those need to be one of their takeaway points. What do you have to do to not get a door, even though their supervisory tests might tell you you're very high risk? A lot of that really comes down to you need to have good risk management practices in place. The words they use during the webinar is your risk management processes need to be commensurate with your risk level. And that's regulatory language that's been used for decades. Sometimes it's hard for credit to put their finger around what does that actually mean. But in many credit use vendors. They have peers. Let's have some discussions with that. Let's have some discussions with your examiners ahead of time of what they might think that may also mean. They'll pretty much say you won't get a door under two conditions. And that's if your risk management processes are acceptable and commensurate or if the credit union has already taken steps to act on their high risk rating. So they've noticed their risk has gone up. So they've went back and they've come up with a plan. We're going to change our pricing strategy. We're going to slow the growth of long-term assets, whatever that may be. But they're looking for, does the credit union already have a plan to maybe start reining in their risk level or containing it or reducing it. So it's those two pieces are the big takeaways. You're not going to get a door if you have really good risk management practices and governance across your credit union, or if your risk is elevated, has your management team done something to rein that back in? Do you have a plan to contain this rising risk? So those are the two big takeaways if you want to avoid a door and get a good risk rating is... Make sure your risk management processes are acceptable and consistent. And I think for some of the credit that already got a door, they did have good risk management processes. I think the examiners were very reluctant to give them a door. They knew one wasn't necessary, but they had this agency policy that says, I have to give you a door. That has happened to places that have very that have risk management pr- practices that are commensurate with their risk. But the second piece for the smaller, moderate credit unions, and if you haven't got an exam yet and you are going to hit their new high risk ratings, do make sure and do a self-assessment. Have we addressed these issues? Have we paid attention to our rising risk levels? Do we have some discussions in our ALCO committee? What are we going to do about it? Are we going to talk about our earnings challenges or And I really, it's go back, look at everything is your credit risk management, where it needs to have, we assessed how this changing marketplace might impact your liquidity risk and credit risk down the road. So continue doing what you're doing. If you have good practices in place, you should be fine.
1: Now that all makes good sense. And you talked about, so someone who's offering fixed rate real estate loans, and that may have played a role. You can tweak what you're putting on the books moving forward, same as tweaking what it is that you're putting on the rest of your assets. You mentioned credit unions that rely heavily on the investment portfolios. You obviously, if they want to hold what they've got to, they've got to let that play out, but they can change what it is they're adding to their book. I know one of the things you and I again have talked about. So one scenario. One of the things that drives this is if your liabilities are mostly in the core deposits, the share, the regular share deposits that have no term, you can try and attract and move that money by creating rates that might help move that money, but it really relies on what your members are willing to do. And then it also has a, an impact on the bottom line. The other thing you can do is. You can, you can start borrowing longer term to make your numbers come out a little bit better. Any thoughts relative to anything I just threw out on the table there on what might make sense, what doesn't make sense, what thing credit unions could consider when they're looking at different levers that they can pull to reduce their overall risk?
0: You can pull all those levers just recognizing there's going to be a cost to them. And like I said, one of the things that's somewhat interesting is Credit unions are getting increasingly competitive for loans, even though interest rates are going up, yield on loans across the industry is coming down because they're just fighting with the banks, credit unions, internet lenders, they're fighting with everybody for loan dollars because even though rates are going up, there's still such a big spread between loans and investments. People are fighting for loan dollars, so loan yields are coming down. That's fascinating. You normally, you would think about, okay, we can pay a higher amount of money to borrow to fund loans. You can pay a higher amount to borrow, but you might not have the loans there to grant sure. at a positive spread. So there's costs to borrowing money. You can do all of those things. The challenge for credit unions is, and it's kind of contrary to what you might think, is the credit with the most non-maturity shares, which are in effect the most stable funding, are the ones that are being the punished the most under this supervisory test. They have the biggest impact, even though they're, in effect, have the least risk and the most stable funding. So it's one of those one-size-fits-all approaches. Is
1: yeah, that's ironic.
0: Somewhat dangerous to people. I think the credit they just have to look at all their levels, and it's a manner of managing earnings. And that is really challenging right now. People doing things to manage those earnings. They're competing for loans. You're seeing more people purchasing loans. They alluded toward the webinar. One of the biggest issues is it's longer duration investments. And that's Cardigan's reaching out there for earnings. It's not there in the loan marketplace because people aren't raising loan rates the way they need to. Consumer loans, the real estate loans are going up because the secondary market does impact those real estate loan rates to a great deal people want to keep that liquidity available so people price those to the secondary market so they do move with treasury rates but all these other consumer loans and i would suspect we've seen this in the last recession back in 2006 2007 commercial loans tend to get underpriced too and while it's only five percent of credit assets the credit that are in that business they need to pay attention to their pricing because quite often you see that get underpriced too. And that has consequences when delinquency starts rising later. Sure. and NCUA starts visiting. I would just throw one last thing out there. And I guess maybe this is a piece of what you ask me about what they can do in terms of funding, but it's go look at your concentration risk levels everywhere and that's on your share side and on your asset side. I think you're going to see your examiners. They're going to start, scrutinizing those concentration risk levels a little bit more and they already elevated it a couple years ago with a letter on concentration risk but i think you might see an even more enhanced focus on it going forward
1: that's good advice very sound advice so the webinar itself went about went a little over probably about 70 minutes about half of that was actually the presentation that's when they got into the question and answers and there were some good questions and one of the biggest questions that i was interested in hearing how they answered was the timing issue so credit unions as you and i know since may a lot of credit unions have received document resolutions simply because perhaps simply because the the previous guidance required that the examiner give the credit union a document resolution if they were rated as extreme. So there were a couple different questions relative to, all right, so I got a document resolution. What happens now that I was rated extreme, which required me to get a document resolution, now extreme doesn't exist. What is NCUA going to do relative to that? Any thoughts relative to the, or could you summarize what you heard as the answers that they gave relative to that? And Any thoughts on that?
0: I can summarize it and then I can tell you what wasn't said too, which is almost as interesting. So they said the region, if you're one of these cardians that hit extreme risk because of the supervisory test and you received a door to send in a plant during the webinar, what they said is the region's going to go back and assess those doors and they will contact you. What wasn't said is what criteria are they going to use to assess those doors? And, are they gonna contact you if your door might be modified? Or are they not gonna contact you if your door is not modified? So they're gonna turn it back over to the regional directors to go through and assess doors that have already been issued and determine what happens with them. And like I said, the interesting part of the webinar is they didn't say what criteria the regions will use to do that. In the new guidance, there's a whole set of extra steps for examiners to go through and assess the sources, how that interest, what made that rating change. And you have clients, they went from moderate to extreme in a quarter, even though their balance sheets didn't change. The guidance says examiners in the future are going to assess what caused that. I'm just gonna surmise that for these creditings that have already received doors that the regions have to go back and reassess is they'll have their examiners go back and look at that. What caused it? Why did it occur? Was it just a market change? Is the creditings other practices? So I think they'll just go back and review those exam reports in light of this new workbook and guidance. That's what I'm gonna guess is gonna happen. Although I don't know, that's speculation on my part. It is speculation. They don't say. They and- NCUA right. is short of staffing and they're short of resources. So, you know, this is a big time commitment to go back. And how does that play into everything? I don't know. They didn't say
1: that. They didn't say they did. They did say that they're going to be training their staff. They're going to be training, training, the, training the states. And perhaps they're still trying to figure out what they're going to do there. And perhaps that will be part of that training Todd Harper did open up about on the front end talking about wanting to make sure that credit unions were treated consistently, that, a, that an exact credit union in region one would be treated similar to region three. There is this nuance now, though, when you push things back towards judgment, it gets harder and harder to treat everybody fairly because, Todd, as you and I know, everybody has a little bit different judgment. Every examiner has a little bit different risk tolerance. Every credit union has a little bit different risk tolerance my advice to a credit union if you had a document resolution and you listen to this webinar and hopefully you listen to this podcast i would reach out to your examiner and engage a conversation saying hey we really want to talk to you about the things we've done you you they probably already know it but highlight to them again make them aware of the of the fact that, that they're going to be reevaluating that and put your best facts forward relative to the document resolution and some of the, the reality is some of the things in there you're going to want to do anyway but whether or not you need that document resolution is something that is definitely up for play here
0: a couple of things that kind of segue into that as well todd harper also you mentioned that interest rate risk was a supervisory priority in 2022 He said, it's going to be on our list again in 2023. And I think it's been on the list. I don't know. I don't remember a year when it wasn't on the list. But then something else they said during the webinar as well is the intensity of your exam and the review of interest rate risk, it isn't going to change with this letter. We took out an extreme risk rating. We said a door isn't required. But they actually added exam steps to their whole interest rate risk review. And they were very clear the intensity of our interest rate risk review. It's not going down. It's probably going to go up. This is not going to make your life any easier. It might mean you don't get a door, but. The examiner scrutiny of interest rate risk, it's not going to change. It's still going to be elevated. In fact, it's going to go up for a certain group of credit unions that hit that high risk threshold on that supervisory test. They were pretty clear in the webinar that what we're doing isn't going to go down. It's going to go up. You might not get a door, but our review is going to get more thorough and more intense.
1: Todd, I think you just hit the biggest highlight of the whole webinar, and it's what you just summarized and what Todd said on the front end. It's a priority now. It's gonna be exam priority next year. And you also picked up on the fact that their exam steps have gone up. Todd was sending signals there that he wants to make sure that this is addressed appropriately by credit unions. But as you said, there's gonna be some difficult conversations they've armed the examiners with some more exam steps that will lead to some more difficult conversations. But when you get to the other side of those conversations, hopefully you can demonstrate that you've put good things in place. And then perhaps you'll learn a thing or two from those conversations that can help you guide your own credit union even better based on some of the things that NCUA is pointing out. But again, you nailed it right there that this issue isn't going away, a NCUA will be asking those difficult questions regardless of whether or not guidance requires a door or not. That's a great point. And again, a highlight of the webinar today.
0: I think Uh, there's another piece to it too. If you're an crediting official or just a member of the public who cares about the NCISIF, then there's some positives in there too. Because the other policy, when they had it and says, you're going to get a door at extreme interest rate risk, It caused a lot of examiners to maybe give credit unions a break that were at high or moderate in risk management processes weren't what they should have been because the examiners didn't have to scrutinize them closely. And the simple fact of the matter is there are probably credit unions out there that might be moderate risk for that supervisory test that they do deserve a door and they probably have taken on more risk than they should have. And maybe some of those people will get caught now because the examiners don't get that automatic get out of jail free card where we're going to reduce our scope and level of review just because the numbers are moderate. And they'll turn that focus back on governance a little bit. And that's a positive thing if you really want to see your share insurance fund protected.
1: That's, it goes the other way as well. It does. No, that's a, that's. I hadn't thought of it in that way, but that's crystal clear. That makes perfect sense. We've hit a lot of the highlights of the letter, and we've hit a highlights. And I think you just hit the two key points of what was said today. Before we wrap this this episode up, Todd, is there anything else that anything I should have asked you, or anything that pops into your mind that a Credit Union might want to take into consideration as they're negotiating these difficult waters of the world today?
0: I'll just throw one more thing out there, and this has always been true, and it affects all your clients. It was brought out in the question and answer session. Someone asked a question about if they're already high or extreme risk, should they reach out to the examiner before the examiner calls them? And it's easy to view your examiner as an enemy, but the reality is if you open the door and communicate with them up front, they can become a resource for your credit union and you can smooth a lot of things over. And you can reduce a lot of exam anxiety and reduce the difficulty of these questions if you're communicating with your examiner up front. So pick up the phone, call them occasionally. A lot of this stuff you can get put aside and you create a lot of trust and credibility with them. And life can become a lot easier for you if you have open, honest, and consistent communications with your examiner. And that. Kind of came out during the webinar too, and the answer and question session. So I would say that's one takeaway. Don't necessarily treat that an examiner and is as an enemy. They're part of the cost of doing business, but you can turn them into a partner if you communicate effectively with them.
1: Great point, Todd. And you reminded me of a quote that I have to now get out of my head here. And that so communication breeds familiarity. And there was a quote that that Mark, former NCUA board member Mark McWater, said that I won't forget. And that was familiarity breeds consent. So you have those communications, and you have those dialogues, and they start to understand NCUA starts to understand better what it is you're doing, and they're going to that's going to create consent. They're going to come towards your direction. If you're building a good program and you're communicating that to them, they're going to be able to better understand what's going on and then use that examiner judgment in a way that is reasonable in dealing with the credit union. So great point, the communication is always a key. Todd, I I really appreciate you You and I have been talking about the letter coming out. And then we heard that as soon as the letter came out, they mentioned that the this webinar was going to be happening, and I'm glad it, this worked into both of our schedules so that we could listen to what NCUA had to say. We could record this to give our take on it, and we can get it out to the listeners real quick. Next week, this will be the episode. And thanks again for listening to the webinar today and sharing your wisdom with our listeners on the podcast.
0: Always a pleasure
1: great great and to those of you listening we appreciate your time thanks for listening to this episode of with flying colors and we hope that you'll listen again soon and this is mark signing off with flying colors thank you for joining us on this episode of with flying colors subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit
0: unions, check out our services at marktreichel.com.